0: Hello and welcome to The Creative Scramble, my name is Cal Thompson and today I'm joined by director and producer Leanne Gator. Hello. Hello. Um, So, the reason I've asked you to come on the podcast is because you have achieved what most filmmakers strive to do in their career, and that's get something featured on Netflix. So, congratulations.
1: Thank
0: you. Um, Could you tell me a little bit about your film, what what is it?
1: Um, So, the film is The Tigers of Scotland. A lot of people take that to quite literally, that there are tigers in Scotland. Um, It's actually about Scottish wildcats, so the reason for the title is um, because the quite affectionate nickname for a Scottish wildcat is a highland tiger. It's got quite stripy flanks, a bit like a tiger, but they're actually not much bigger than your regular house cat. Um, A lot of people think they're about the size of a dog or something, but they are quite small. Um, We just like to use the term big cat to kind of define them a little bit from a house cat. Um,
0: and they're, I assume, incredibly endangered, which is why yes. you're shedding light on them, right?
1: Yeah. So, um, about ten years ago, we thought there was four thousand in Scotland, and that number has dropped to
0: ninety-five. Oh, so well, it's, it's quite a big. Why drop. is that? Are they just been taken out by farmers or um, poachers, or what would that be?
1: Well, historically, it would be gamekeepers. Um, unfortunately, I know they get. A lot of stick in in the wildlife community. Um, Yeah, they were seen as a pest. They were seen as vermin. Um, Unfortunately, they were probably actually helping the gamekeepers unwittingly by keeping all the other vermin at bay. But it's one of those. Um, And actually, because a lot of the gamekeepers um, joined up for the First World War and obviously didn't come back, that released the pressure on them. So they were probably at their most endangered around 1914, and then they've kind of started to build up their numbers again. Um, but the problem being that they can crossbreed with domestic cats, which are actually a different species. And so as they found themselves in areas with no other wild cats, they've bred with domestic cats and they're kind of slowly going extinct through genetic dilution, which is quite sad, really.
0: Right, so why, why is that important to you? Like, why have you chosen to, to study and document um,
1: wild cats? I just thought it was, kind of quite unjust. I have cats myself, I've always had cats.
0: Um, I'm a friend of a dog lover, so I can't really relate, <laughs> but you know, we'll, we'll fight about it later. Um,
1: <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing. Like uh, A lot of people have have come up to me as cat lovers going, like, you know, we've been really interested in it because I'm a cat lover. But equally, I've had people come up to me and go, you know what, I'm a dog lover, I never really thought much about cats, but this cat is quite important. We need to make sure it doesn't go extinct. Uh, and so I think it kind of... It obviously helps if people are cat lovers to like the film, but it doesn't really matter as long as you like animals. Um, I think you're going to find it of interest because there's a lot more than just wild cats in there. Yeah,
0: because um, they don't really get any, although I haven't really had any exposure publicly, from what I've seen. You know, there's things like the the panda out in China is getting a lot of attention, yeah, and, and you know the, the Bengal tigers. Obviously, they're very they're endangered species and they do need. To be made aware that's, of and that investment needs to be put their way.
1: That was kind of why but, I wanted to do the film though, because, like you say, the, the tigers is a, a big problem because they get, um, they've get they not got a lot of space and so they're inbreeding and things, which is a huge issue for so is that any just habitat animal.
0: destruction. That's, that's habitat numbers.
1: destruction, yeah. Um, but there's 3,900 of them and there's only 95 wildcats. Yeah. So you would think that the wildcat would be picked up on for the same reason, but I think. Uh, both in in Britain even and across the world, we kind of had this idea that it's a sterile island, there's nothing here, and that's just not true. Um, and so we kind of neglect the animals that are living in our own backyard.
0: Yeah. Um, so what, what are people doing to sort of help these endangered animals?
1: Um, well obviously on the one side you've got the conservationists who are coming at it from a professional point of view. Um, they're all trained in ecology and animal behaviour and things, and they're really running the, um, the whole side of... Uh, monitoring, making sure that they know exactly what kind of environments to be looking for, for these animals. But the actual interesting part is the, there's only probably six or seven conservationists, to so a whole army of volunteers and these are ordinary people who have day jobs. Some of them are vets, some of them are teachers, they're in all sorts of careers and they're all really concerned about wildcats because most of them they are they're in the areas that these animals are living in. Most of them, just out of curiosity, as trail cameras have become more affordable and more available, put one up and discovered that there's actually a, a wildcat quite literally in their back garden. Right. Um, and so they've got a personal connection to the, the animals and they really want to help them. Um, which is, is really quite lovely that, that that's kind of what's brought it about, is this availability to consumers. Yeah.
0: Um, why, why did you want to make a documentary, personally? Was you a filmmaker, you you're a wildlife photographer <laughs> as well?
1: Yeah. Um, so I went to a hide in the Cairngorms um, in 2015 Um we... It's
0: national park in Scotland. Yes, yeah, know. it was it's national Standard.
1: park in Scotland. We took a 1973 VW camper van around Scotland for a week um, and saw a whole host of things. So uh, there's like, there's reindeers in the Cairngorms, for example. A lot of people don't know that we have reindeer. Um, and so we went to this wildlife hide because it was um, tipped off as one of the best places to see pine martens, uh, which are another UK what, predator. What's that? They are a relative of uh, otters, badgers, they're, they're the right. mustelid family. Um, but they're, they're increasingly becoming important to uh, British rewilding efforts because they actually they are a really good predator against grey squirrels. And so, where they are, the grey squirrels tend to move out or die out if the predators are yeah. eating them. Uh, and that means that red squirrels can come back in, and red squirrels are our native creature. Um, so, it's kind of they're becoming quite important for that reason. Grey squirrels aren't native to the UK. Mm. Um, We brought them over in ships, rather stupidly. Um, And they took um,
0: over and decimated the red squirrel.
1: Yeah, they carry squirrel pox, which they're immune to, but the red squirrels have no immunity to, and that's really what's wiped them out. Um, So it's it's really a good thing that that Pine Martins quite like snacking on grey squirrels, as horrible as that sounds. Um, It's the circle of life, right? Um, So yeah, we were this wildlife hide looking for pine martens and we got chatting to the host of the hide um, and he told me as someone who has lived in Scotland all his life lived in the Cairngorms all his life somewhere that even if you know about wildcats is seen as being a really good place for wildcats to to live and be seen he'd only ever seen three and this was a man in his 50s
0: yeah
1: and that really stuck with me um, and I couldn't get them out of my head I, I keep joking now that the wildcats have got their claws in and they're not letting go. Um, <laughs> because they are quite ferocious and there are a lot of conservationists who have been working with the, the breeding population who have scars to show that. A lot of oh. people keep going, oh, they look all cute and cuddly. They're not. They're vicious. <laughs> they
0: are vicious. Just cats for you, isn't it? <laughs> how, how did you... <laughs> sorry, I'm a dog lover, I've said it before. How did you get so close to the wildcats? Obviously, you've got some um, stunning footage in the documentary. And I'll, I'll put... The link to the trailer and stuff like that in the show notes so people can see it, but you got right up there and obviously with the means of danger, did you have very to track long, them? or Very long lenses,
1: yeah. um, that's kind of the key. Um, we also work quite closely with um, a couple of people who had them as part of the conservation breeding. Um, so there's they are mentioned in the film, there's Five Sisters Zoo and Agish in particular, where we were filming them with.
0: So all in captivity and then they're breeding them and then they're going to release them?
1: Yes, so that's that that's the goal. So they have a population of around about 80 individuals in, in captivity at the moment that they're breeding from. They, they keep very, very close eye on who's bred with who and who's parented who and so that there's no inbreeding. Um, and they are they're actively looking at uh, places to release these barcats cats within the next couple of years. So they've got, I think it's three or four potential places they're looking at at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but they obviously have to make sure, they have to do a survey, make sure there's, um, there's no threats from feral cats, um, which as I said before, can interbreed, but they can also pass diseases along. Um, they also have to make sure there's enough prey to support the population and think about any future populations as well, make sure that they can connect up quite well. Yeah. So there's a lot of work that goes into that, because that's another question that I keep getting is, well, why don't they just release them? Well, they can't just release them, they have to make sure that they give them the best chance of survival when they do release them.
0: Yeah, otherwise we're back to square one in a year or two. Exactly, yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about the production side of things. Obviously a lot mm-hmm. of um, filmmakers and video professionals will listen to this podcast and they'll be curious to you know how do you make uh, you know, a, a feature documentary, it's just sub one hour. How, how much time did you put into making this, this film?
1: Um, so, quite a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, research took about a year, production was supposed to take over a year and then uh, got shrunk down to about eight months and I spent um, maybe seven weeks of that actually in the field. Now I was working a full time job whilst making this, that's how I funded the film. I so um, Doing what? I worked as a rental associate for um, a photography rental company. Oh right, okay. So it was related, yeah. um, but obviously working a full-time job. Was, was it in Scotland th- then? So you No, no, that was you in just Manchester. commuted. Yeah. So you love
0: just love the M6. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Don't love the M6, but the uh, the A82 and the A85 are pretty nice, and the uh-huh. A9 to be fair, uh, going up through the Cairngorms. Because um, we were in the the far far north of Scotland, so um, it's once you get off the motorway. All the main roads are th- th- through nice areas, anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I funded it through the main, jo- uh, the full-time job. But the flip side of that is I only had limited time and holiday. So.
0: Well, so when were you shooting it? Is this like evenings and weekends? Uh,
1: no, I'd take whole weeks off of work and, and do it, and then I'd just try and line it up so that I could go the weekend before my holiday started and come back the weekend that my holiday. Right, and just and blitz it for like. Pretty much. You yeah.
0: Know, Ten days, or whatever. Yeah
1: pretty much. Um, there were times where I managed to get a, a bit extra time to go up, but again, it's the, the actual cost of living while you're up there. You know, you've know, you got all the food to think about, you've got the fuel to think about, because it is a long way. Um, the rental is a kit to think about as well, so yeah, I, it helps that I worked in rental, but there was only so much that I could rent from a photography hire company, and I needed to go to a film hire company. So.
0: So had, it was quite a small team, wasn't it? It was just you and your partner that made the yeah, film Yeah, reality. so production
1: crew was me and Alex. Um, and then post-production is really where we brought other people in. Um, because I can edit, but I'm not as good as a, of an editor as someone who does it professionally. And I wasn't about to try and heap an extra load of stress on myself of trying to edit my first hour long film myself. Um, so I brought in... Um, a good team of, of people who are all specialised in those areas. So I've got Pavel, who was my editor. Andy was my sound designer. Um, Sophie, my friend from uni, is a brilliant musician, and she's uh, actually doing an MA in sound design now as well. So she did all the composition um, and... Did you sort
0: have to beg Boris deal?
1: Um, well, I, I managed to pay for a little bit myself, and then I ran a, a crowdfunding campaign to really help with post... Um, so there, there was a bit of money coming in from, from others to help with post-production. Yeah. Um, but yeah, pretty much it was a case of, I, I have a little bit of money, I don't have the full rates that I know you guys deserve, what can you do for me?
0: Yeah, yeah. So That's the thing, filmmaking is obviously incredibly expensive, uh, which is why yeah. you tend to need you know, massive corporations or brands to commission these sort of things yes. up front. Like I can't yeah. imagine, how, how much it actually cost? Do you know, roughly, if you don't mind saying?
1: A lot. (laughs) (laughs) So neither me nor Alex paid ourselves at all for it. Right. Um, It's interesting to
0: know how much it would cost based on your day rates and how much time you put into it. An awful lot more. Neglecting that, what? How much did you spend? Um,
1: We easily spent over twenty-five grand.
0: Oh my days.
1: Yeah, and that was, like I say, my full-time job. That was parents, friends, and people helping out in the crowdfunding campaign. Um, that was Alex putting in when he could as well, because obviously we've got to pay the bills at the same time. So. Yeah, yeah, you've
0: still got so rent back in Manchester or yep, a mortgage so or whatever. Mortgage
1: and, and bills and things. So.
0: Well, well done. And, you know, it's an incredible feat to, to get it featured on Netflix. So I just want to yes. talk about how, how did you get it?
1: So Out I have there, a,
0: you know, that's a big thing for any film, yeah. because you want your film to be seen and you exactly. want to accomplish that.
1: Um, so I have a distributor, um, he did all the work getting it onto Netflix, um, so I don't actually have uh, any of the credit for that, uh, that was all his, his work. Right. Um, but I do get a lot of questions with people asking me, well how do you even get a distributor, how do you get in front of them? Um, the truth is he approached me, um, so we had the film listed on a film festival website, and uh, he was already interested in acquiring some wildlife films. He went down the list, found us, and sent us an email and just said, hey, I'm really interested in, in the idea. Uh, would you be open for me potentially distributing the film? Um, I did also, to make sure I was getting myself a good deal, I did also contact some other distributors. So yeah. they're, they're not hard to find. You know, there's a whole list of them on Google. Um, and they really don't mind people reaching out I think a lot of people if get... If it's good a
0: enough, the film will stand up.
1: Exactly, yeah. but I think a lot of people, I know I do it as well, they get a bit afraid of making the first contact and I don't think that they need to necessarily worry about that because how else is the distributor going to know about your work? You know, yeah, they're, yeah. they're not going to be able to go to every single film festival there is.
0: Unless it goes viral somehow.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know. um, so I don't think people should really be too afraid of approaching distributors because the worst they could say is no. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of them, if they do say no, they'll tell you why they've said no and they'll maybe suggest someone else. It might just be the case that they're not the right people to distribute your film.
0: Yeah. Well, how does that uh, kind of a deal work with the distributor? Obviously, you've spent a lot of money up front. Yeah. You, are you able to recoup any of those costs at all? Yes. Yeah, or so does the distributor take 95%? No, no,
1: no, they don't take 95%, though. Unless you've got a really bad deal. Yeah. Um, so It tends to be different for every deal. Um, I've spoken to other people who've had very different deals to me. Um, But generally, um, the kind of deal that you're looking at is uh, 60, 40 or 35, 70 split, you getting the larger amount. So they're effectively taking commission. Mm -hmm. Um, Some distributors, as with our case, will offer you what's called an MG or a minimum guarantee. So that is money up front that they are willing to bet on selling the film. Um, that mg helped us pay for Ian's fees, so we got Ian as a narrator as a result. Um, but what it, what it means in the long run is they are more invested in actually selling your film because they've stumped up a whole lot of cash to prove to you that yeah they're they're willing to make sure it gets sold. So you might not see anything initially from sales that come through because they have to recoup that. But then after that, it will start trickling in. Yeah, almost um, like
0: royalties for music.
1: Yeah, effectively, yeah. Um, again, a lot of deals are, are different, whether it's paid monthly, quarterly, yearly or whatever. Um, but you know once that MG is cleared that for the length of your deal, you'll have X amount coming in every month, every quarter, something like that. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like passive income once, you've, nice. once you've done all the hard part. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, you, you know, you deserve to get your money back at the end of the day. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's the thing, like, um. We never intended to try and make money with the film. That wasn't the intention of it. The whole point was to raise awareness. But we spent so much money, it pretty much ruined us. (laughs) So we we really struggled at the end of it. And so this is just Just a nice way of
0: toast every night. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uh, this is just
1: a nice way of kind of recouping that money and getting it out there at the same time. Yeah. Nobody wants to be broke for the rest of their lives. That's not why they get into filmmaking. You have to earn money from it. Um, But Netflix was just a nice way to be able to to do both, really, because it's such a big platform and people, their algorithms work really well. So people who you wouldn't necessarily think would be interested in the film are finding it. Um, We've had people referring it completely independently to friends of ours, not knowing that they're friends of ours, and then said friends of, of Kind of messaged us, going, oh, you know, so and so is like it's popped up on their feed, and they're the last person I would have thought would be interested in it, and yeah. So,
0: are people actually watching it then? Like, how, yes. how do you know what the stats are? You know, it comes to Netflix. You've so, not got a YouTube view count on the bottom. No, line of I point, don't have right? a YouTube view count. How
1: does that work? Um, we don't have any stats from Netflix. I don't know if we're likely to get any stats from Netflix, um, but we do have a website. We have social media, and um, we've been able to to track interactions from those. So, we've gone from. Around forty fifty hits on website a day to over a thousand. Um, we've also sh- more than doubled. I'll be happy
0: with forty or fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I know,
1: I know. We worked hard to get forty or fifty yeah. a day. Um, we we more than doubled our f- Facebook following in less than a week. Um, so I th- I'm pretty sure That's people a good are metric. watching it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. But
1: the the really nice thing is, as part of that, as part of the social interaction, um, we're getting uh, people obviously. A lot of cat lovers, like I said, are watching the film they're sending us photos of the cats watching the film, which is really funny because my cats do it um, and yesterday we actually had someone who who watched it with their six year old and uh, the six year old completely unprompted her next art session the next day she drew the Wildcats. Um, oh, right. and sent she they sent us the pictures of, of her drawing and it was really good yeah <laughs> yeah
0: so I mean amazing you you briefly mentioned Ian who narrated the film so narrator was Ian Glenn yes. and most people have probably ever heard of his name but as soon as you yes. hear maybe, I've written it down here so I'll get it right, Sir Jora Mormont from yep. Game of Thrones, um, you know your ears will prick up and all uh, exactly of course yeah. he's the stone guy so, from Game of Thrones, that's incredible, You know, he's yeah. an icon of Scotland. How did you get him involved in the film?
1: So um, again it was my writers idea to have a, a Scottish narrator, um, so he's a Scottish writer, it's a Scottish subject um, and so we just started having to listen to Scottish voice actors. Wasn't initially thinking of anyone famous, just listening to the kind of accent, the um, how the voice would work, whether it was a male or a female, that kind of thing. Um, it's really interesting that a lot of Scottish women do commercials like for banks and things, and a lot of Scottish men yeah. do documentaries and things. It's very strange, but um, yeah. So we came across a Visit Scotland advert that Ian had narrated. And I sat and I listened to it and I went, I want that voice, that's it, that's the voice I want. Um, Realised it was Ian, found his agent's details, because again, Google is your friend in all of this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and and just got in touch really, and just said, look, he's our first choice, would he be interested? Sent him the first page of the script, because we didn't have a full script at that point. I said, this is just a kind of taster to let you know what the script's going to be like. Uh, Waited a few days, didn't think I was going to hear anything back and then got an email back saying Ian's really interested um, can you send us a full script when you have it right. um, and yeah did it you get to meet him
0: it. or did, was yeah. it all done remotely no no or?
1: I met mean. okay. him <laughs> I was there <laughs> I made the trip down to London to do it um, so I, yeah I w- went down to London in May um, Is he, it just turned out that he had a, a bit of time at his house in London between tours with Game of Thrones so they one thing he was explaining to me whilst I was there is uh, when he's not actually acting is the whole cast basically gets shipped around the world to go to various Comic Cons, go meet the fans and do various things and so he was, just, he was quite glad to be at home and do something a bit different I think. Yeah, yeah. Not that he doesn't like working on Game of Thrones but it was just re- a bit refreshing to do something different.
0: Yeah, yeah. So was it just a day in the sound booth and smash Pretty much, out? Pretty
1: yeah. Obviously? Yeah. Um, so he is obviously a consummate professional. He, he required very little direction from me, which is great because um, I'm not used to directing actors at all. Um, I would normally, previously, I've I've only ever done the narration myself, which I hate the sound of my own voice, um, which makes it really hard when you're editing. (laughs) You
0: might have to listen to this podcast (laughs) if you don't want
1: to. I think that's just, you know, everybody hates the sound of their own voice. Um, If they they say they don't, then I don't believe them. Um, (laughs) But... Yeah, so it was it was quite nerve-wracking for me to, to, to kind of direct somebody, let alone someone of his standing, but as soon as he walked through the door, he just put me at ease. He's so lovely. Mm. And he was genuinely really nice to work with. You know, I, I've heard horror tales of people working with famous actors that they really look up to and how they're really disappointed, but you know, Ian's just a lovely person. Yeah, no, that's that really, really, really
0: nice to hear. Um, just to sort of flip it again, you said... Uh, obviously, you invested a large amount of money mm-hmm. and a large amount of time. I yes. you had a full-time job. Like you, you, you and Alex both sacrificed an awful lot. Do you think that did that have a negative impact on your career at all? Because you kind of put all your eggs in one basket for that entire year. Yeah. Almost. like what, and obviously it's come off great. Like I mean, it's amazing. But so many filmmakers and so many investors will 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 put all their eggs in one basket, and make a film, and it it won't go anywhere. Yeah. You know what? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, what makes it,
0: like why were you successful and other people weren't as well? Luck. <laughs> <laughs> there you have I it, guys. <laughs> I, I
1: really don't know the answer to that question, but um, I think it is it is a risk putting all your eggs in one basket. Um, but with natural history, it is extremely difficult to get into um, unless you know unless you're already really well known, like someone like Doug Allen or Gordon Buchanan. Um, you really have to fight hard to prove your worth. Which is fair because you know the people hiring are going to be hiring you for months at a time as opposed to maybe weeks, so they want to know that they can rely on you. Um, And so I kind of figured I had to. I really wanted to make the story, and I had to make it myself to to show people that I am capable of doing it. Um, You know, I'm normally a camera person. That's what I, I do. I freelance as a camera operator, but there's less and less kind of calling. For just a camera operator, and there's more calling for people who can shoot, produce, and direct. And so that's that also was an excuse for me to make this film, is to prove that I can shoot and produce and direct. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: what are your thoughts on that? With sort of slimming down crews? I know it's the old school camera operators that are we're part of quite a few different WhatsApp groups, and they're quite upset about all these jobs for shooting PDs going around because they feel like they're not. Putting professional camera operators on it, they put in like assistants and producers on it, and yeah. giving them a camera, and then the content is I kind of subpar-, <laughs> subpar. Thankfully, you're a camera yeah. operator first. Like, wh- <laughs> yeah.
1: I think I do it fine. myself.
0: I have to shoot and direct yeah. as well, so and I know it has to. You have to evolve with it. Yeah, but there is an old school attitude that you know it's tarnishing the industry.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. I don't. I don't think everybody needs to be a jack of all trades. Um, there are always going to be people out there that do everything themselves. You know, Robert Rodriguez is probably one of the most famous examples of it. I also know a wildlife photographer, uh, cinematographer who does everything himself. He's just got two series on Curiosity Stream that he has shot, edited, produced, done the music, sound design, everything for. They are few and far between. Um,
0: is it just jealousy, maybe?
1: <laughs> I. I think. I think it's just the way that the industry is going, particularly in broadcast. I don't necessarily think the film industry is going that way because uh, narrative feature films require so many people and they're so complex compared to a lot of broadcast docs. I mean, I know that it's not, it's not quite the same as, say, something like Game of Thrones, that's more in the, the kind of feature film territory. Um, but you can get away with uh, smaller budgets on broadcast documentaries in particular. Um, and the reality is that your commissioning editors have smaller budgets than they used to. The, mm. the BBC is probably one of the few people that do still have the budget. But if you have a look at the end of things like Planet Earth, they're actually co-producing with five other big broadcasters. So they're not putting all their eggs in one basket anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, it's there's just so much content, you know, with it being online. Um, a yeah. broadcast, and film, cinema. There's so many ways a to lot consume of them content.
1: Just aren't willing to take the risk these days either um any new kind of style formats anything that we we would kind of push with experimentalism with short films they're a bit more reticent to take on and see how it works with their audience because they know what their audience typically likes but equally there are some people who are still willing to take the risk. so i sat in on a talk with um the head of commissioning for natural history the other week for example and he was saying that bbc one Obviously, you still your very traditional format, particularly with natural history. It's your Attenborough narrated, where you spend probably about five minutes per episode on each species and you kind of chop and change and they're normally all within one ecosystem or something like that. So, you know, people don't lose interest, but then BBC Two is willing to take more risks. So you will get a bit more where it's all on one species or it's on a harder subject or it's a bit more experimental in format. Um, and they're not quite so worried if you don't make that work, because at least they've tried it, which I thought was quite interesting coming from, obviously, a big broadcaster that runs multiple channels. Um, but again, it, it, it'd be completely different if it was a feature film, you know? Yeah. How do you judge what the cinemas are going to want to put in their, their screens? You know, they, they're really concerned with getting bums on seats less so in broadcast. You want the viewers, but it doesn't necessarily have to be there and then anymore because you've got catch-up. Yeah. So and it's
0: platforms like Netflix, Amazon yes. Prime, you know, they're skipping the whole cinema release completely. Exactly. And some are just going direct to... On exactly. On I mean,
1: Amazon Prime, iTunes, a lot of platforms are actually really easy for filmmakers to upload themselves. But then you've got to make sure you've got a marketing plan in place, um, which can involve quite a bit of money. Um, you know, you'll always see things. I like, I get inundated with trailers for new films coming out, like the all of the Disney new ones, The Lion King, The Nutcracker. All of this are all constantly popping up on social media.
0: That's because they um, put an awful lot of money behind the exactly, links.
1: exactly. So how do you get around that when you're an indie indie film producer? You've got to put the time in if you can't put the money in. And a lot of people are either time rich and money poor, or money rich and time poor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it, it's it's a hard one to balance. Right. Um,
0: Amazing. I mean, what what's next then? You've, you've, you've kind of reached your peak, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> or have you got have you got loads more lined up? Like, what are you
1: thinking? I hope I haven't reached my peak. It's a bit early <laughs> in my career to reach my peak. Um, <laughs> now I've got uh, multiple projects in development. Um, and the reason that I have multiple projects and not just one is because you can put your heart and soul into one project, but if the you know, if commissioners or investors or you know anybody that you need to try and get money from or you know or get involved in the project doesn't quite feel it, doesn't think that it's quite the right thing for them, you've got to give them another option because we can't afford to just get attached to one project. Um, you know, there's some of the, the more experienced and, and long-running um, production companies who've been batting ideas at the same commissioners for 20 years before they get produced. So it. it Takes a long time um, to get anything done in broadcasting, in particular.
0: Um, are you allowed to say what any of these projects are? Or is it all top secret?
1: Um, it's not top secret. Um, can you give a premise? Yeah, I can give a premise. So, over a couple of them. So, um, there's one that I'm reasonably hopeful is going to go ahead next year, which is about horseshoe crabs. So, again, another species that not a lot of people will be aware of. I know Um, what a horseshoe
0: is, I know what a crab is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the kind of odd thing about them, is their name actually doesn't help uh, because they're not a crab. Uh, They're more closely related to scorpions, um, but they... are they.
0: Is it going to be underwater?
1: Yeah, so... So it's going to be underwater, shoe, that'll be ace. Not all of it will be underwater, part of it will hopefully be underwater, um, which I'm not a qualified dive tech, so I will need to get an underwater cinematographer for, but... um, the big issue with that and the reason that I'm, I'm going to need funding on it is because there are none in Britain. They, they have a species in America and three species in Southeast Asia. So it's the, obviously the money of getting over there. Um, but the big problem with them that a lot of people don't realise, um, which I know with growing veganism movement makes it even more difficult, is actually all of modern medicine relies on horseshoe crabs. And it's... Why? It's kind of a really horrible thing that, or it sounds horrible anyway, that we need their blood to protect us against really dangerous bacteria. So uh, their blood has a unique uh, agent where it can coagulate around uh, bacteria that might survive other sterilization processes. And so anything that comes into contact with our skin or our bloodstream, so scalpels, vaccines, needles, all of that kind of thing has to be tested. Uh, It has to have two tests. So the backup is still unfortunately injecting things into rabbits. They yeah. don't have another option, um, but it has to go through horseshoe crab blood first, and so they have to catch the horseshoe crabs to drain the blood. Um,
0: Can they, they not breed them?
1: They are trying. They're extremely difficult to breed. Um, part of the reason for that is a female might lay 80,000 eggs, and only eight of those might actually hatch. Oh, gosh. Uh, so odds are slim. <laughs> yeah, but the, the thing is, they've, they're actually one of the oldest creatures on the planet. So they've been around since before flowering plants. Um, so they've survived this long for a reason. Um, the only reason that they're, they're suffering now is actually us.
0: Pollutants um, in the ocean, I guess.
1: Pollutants in the ocean, we're building on beachfronts. Um, we are harvesting them for, for biomedical research. The biggest problem was overfishing. So the, the, in America, they, they use horseshoe crabs for um, bait for eel and conch fishing and they disproportionately, the the eels and and conch prefer the females, so they're disproportionately fishing for females, uh, which obviously provides an awful lot of stress on the population. Um, But at least in America, they they have strict mandates. So they're not allowed to catch more than half a million and they're only allowed to drain a third of their blood. Uh, They don't have those mandates in Southeast Asia. So the animals caught, drained of all their blood and then sold for consumption.
0: It's unfortunate, isn't it, there's all sorts of stuff still going on out there, you know, poaching is still quite rife. Yep. Um, what was the one I was thinking of? Uh, it's definitely, uh, there's an ivory trade out in, in Southeast Asia.
1: Yeah, and I unfortunately, can't, I, I can't think really um, the China's just recently um, rolled back its protections against tiger body parts and um, rhino uh, horn.
0: And shark fin soup, that's the one yep. I was thinking of. Yeah. yep, shark fin soup. <laughs> Basically, they cut off the, sh- the, the fins, they toss over the rest of the... The shark's
1: the shark. still alive when they do it as well, and it, it will kill the shark, yeah. because they can't swim. That's yeah. the whole point of fins, to help them stay a particular direction yeah. and, and move around in the water.
0: So, so part of what you're doing is trying to educate the masses um, of how important these, sort of, these creatures are.
1: Yeah, I, so think, I think all documentaries kind of have that in mind. Um, you've got to have an education principle to, to the point of, do- of a documentary, I think, because otherwise, what point are you trying to make? Uh, you're trying to raise awareness of an issue and that ultimately becomes mm. an education of the audience. But I don't want to ram anything down anyone's throat, you know, I want to give them the facts and let them make up their own mind. Yeah,
0: there's two very powerful documentaries that stick to my mind. Cowspiracy, mm-hmm. which did very, very well. And I haven't eaten beef since, and that's two, <laughs> two years ago. Because, I, you know, that was just for environmental reasons I wanted to mm. contribute, and whether it's only it's only small, I, obviously I recycle and do the, environmental, is very important, but my contribution above and beyond that was to not eat meat, uh, sorry, not eat beef, and I don't miss it one iota, and I feel like I'm making a bit more of an impact. And there's this, there's also uh, Blackfish as well, yep. which obviously demonized SeaWorld, which was absolutely incredible what they achieved.
1: Yeah, so uh, Blackfish, um, Blackfish did make waves for hey. a lot of reasons, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't mean the pun, but uh, there was a lot of reasons. I Obviously, it's one of the few documentaries that is directly um, brought about government sanctions and changes in the law and things. Um, but also it's had a massive impact, even if you've not watched the documentary, it's had a massive impact on how you perceive like marine worlds and things like that. So, so many people have stopped going because they realize actually, maybe I shouldn't be watching this stuff. Maybe they're not being well kept and maybe actually we're putting the trainers in danger as well by keeping them with these animals that wouldn't necessarily come into contact with humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of a really inspirational example in that sense. Um, Carspiracy again, made people think about their contributions. You know, we a lot of people will say with the environment, oh, you know, I'm only one person, what I'm going to do isn't going to make a difference. But that's not true. It's really not true. Even if your contribution is perceived to be quite small, if everybody makes their own small contribution, that adds up to a lot. Mm. So like you say, we recycle as much as we can, we avoid Beef as much as we can. We try and, we actually try and buy uh, meat reduced that would otherwise go to waste. Um, because a, because meat is very expensive, um, but b, because we don't believe in food waste. Yeah. yeah. We're we're trying to not waste anything really. Um, it's easily,
0: easily done, isn't it? You know, trying to reduce the amount of plastic packaging that you buy, or you know, yeah, using plastic packaging. Little a things a that everyone can do. Frustrating at supermarkets. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is easily done. You just need to think about it a bit more rather than just floating yeah. through life. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. I, think I don't it, want to get
0: too preachy on the environment no,
1: here. But no, no. I, I hate being preached to, so I, I know exactly what people are going to be feeling if they think that we're preaching to them. Um, but it is like that the case, you know, a little effort does go a long way. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think that one had impact. There's another one, if you've not watched it, that I think you probably ought to watch, which will probably make you hate yourself for owning a car. Um, but it's I've got a,
0: a diesel f- as well. Such it's a, a fantastic,
1: fantastic documentary. We have a diesel, unfortunately, but it's more useful to us at times because it's a an SUV. Yeah, yeah. The petrol versions just aren't as efficient as the diesel one. Unfortunately, I know how bad the particulates are and things, and I, I do feel bad every time I use it. But uh, what are you going to do when you've got? You've got to live your life, haven't you? A, yeah, especially in our profession, when you've got a full of equipment that won't fit in a, a tiny little Polo mm. like I've got. So, um, yeah, the other documentary is Racing Extinction. That had an incredible effect on me because at the time I was still working for the photography rental company. And it frustrated me every day, the amount of paper that we wasted with that company because the systems were so old. We still used dot matrix printers. Um, And they actually messed up the computer system if you didn't print things. It was really weird. but the amount of waste that obviously produces, the amount of paper you're going through on a daily basis. You know, I'm sat watching this documentary and all I'm thinking about is the amount of waste that my job creates. And then I'm, they actually had a really innovative uh, camera that they built, uh, which uh, I don't know how it worked exactly, but it um, showed up carbon dioxide emissions um, and even the most efficient petrol cars produce an awful lot more than we think and that made me feel really guilty as well because at that point I just bought a new car um and you I always leave in the
0: garage got on your bike <laughs> yeah. you're going to hell
1: I don't have a bike that's oh, the problem no. like, I really need to get one I keep saying I need to get one and then for whatever reason the money gets spent on something else like a new lens or stuff for the cats or you know yeah. <laughs> other things the bike always gets pushed down the priorities list but I really ought to get one yeah um so yeah, Racing Extinction is a, another really hard-hitting one.
0: I okay, think. cool. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dan. It's been amazing. No I'll problem. put the, the links to the trailer for Tigers of Scotland. If you've got a Netflix subscription, please go and watch it. Give us some support. Go watch Cowspiracy, go watch Blackfish. And what was the last one you just said?
1: Racing Extinction.
0: All amazing documentaries. You'll learn a lot. Peace. Yep.